one of the biggest things we learned in this nine-month strategic planning process was that we were not ready to transform to be a future-focused organization to serve more girls. We as an organization weren't prepared. Mm. And this was an interesting finding. And basically what people were saying is, don't come to us until you're ready. And that means really understanding what your strengths are, understanding your culture, having trust internally. So this episode of the Reimagine Leadership Limited Series podcast is really the launching point. So you're listening to my conversation today with CEO Jennifer Bartkowski, and she is CEO of Girl Scouts of Northeast Texas. And by the way, I think I'll abbreviate that from here on out to GSNETX because the other is, is a mouthful. So we're talking actually on May 26, 2023, the day after we commenced our first program. So it was a about a seven-month program that had multiple dimensions of it. We'll be talking about that later. And in this limited series, we're going to be talking about different aspects of the program. So some will be content-based. And my conversations with Jennifer, which right now we'll be having three, are more about the the big ideas and what worked, what we learned, and some some things that we were considering as we designed the program. And so today, again, is the launch of that. So Jennifer Bartkowski, as I said, is CEO of Girl Scouts of Northeast Texas. Jennifer, you've been in the role for nine years. And if memory serves me right, you were chief development officer and then executive vice president and COO before you moved into the CEO position about uh, nine years ago. Do I have that right? You have that right. And today I'm (laughs) a very proud CEO of Girl Scouts of Northeast Texas. And you should be, and we are also proud to be associated with you. Just as an aside, uh, I'm so glad that you continue to get all the accolades that you get in the community for the amazing work that you're doing and being seen actually in Dallas as a most admired CEO. And that doesn't always happen with nonprofits. The focus there is typically business uh, or for-profit business. And so that's uh, your latest additional hat or award that you've won. So congratulations again on that. Thank you. Yeah. So I just want to start here by having you describe to folks who are listening, kind of the size and the scope of Girl Scouts of Northeast Texas and the impact so that as we're talking and people are listening, they have an idea of you know, the size of the organization, et cetera, as they're, as they're hearing all this. So uh, maybe let's start there. Sure. So Girl Scouts of Northeast Texas is um, a, a large organization. We have about a $19 million budget. We cover 32 counties, 23,000 square miles, and we serve almost 20,000 girls post-COVID. We are what known as one of the more innovative Girl Scout councils in the country, and we are obviously very committed to our mission of building girls of courage, confidence, and character who make the world a better place. But we also are very focused on changing our community in really defined ways that are 
are important to the organizations and people of our community. Girl Scouts is the largest pipeline for future female leaders. And that means that we have to be focused on ensuring that girls get access to programs and opportunities that they won't get anywhere else. So our focus is primarily on STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, life skills, which can include anything from having good conversations, building relationships, financial literacy skills, entrepreneurship, of course, known mostly through our outstanding Girl Scout cookie program and the outdoor leadership program. So those are our four key areas of focus. But since COVID, we've also added a focus in mental health and wellness for our girls because girls need that um, focus more than ever before. In fact, um, in February, the CDC released a report that said three out of five girls are feeling persistently sad and hopeless. One in three girls has considered suicide in the last year. So those are areas that are intertwined into everything we do. In addition, after the murder of George Floyd, we added a real focus on inclusion, equity, and belonging in our organization, both for our staff and our volunteers and our girls. So those are kind of our key areas of focus. One of our largest innovations that we're very proud of is our STEM Center of Excellence in Southwest I was hoping you would talk about that. Yeah, it's amazing. (laughs) It is a 92-acre, $15 million facility that is was built to change the workforce pipeline for North Texas. And we partnered with corporations, nonprofits, universities, and school districts to create a large campus that is 5G enabled. It is a place where girls can go and experience all kinds of STEM activities, job exploration, uh, mentors in anything from robotics to mechanical engineering, to coding, to 5G, to underwater robotics, to anything that you can imagine. We have a great maker space there. We have a green, a smart greenhouse um, on site. We've got all kinds of really great opportunities for girls there. And we do believe that as girls get that experience that, and they can see others that look like them and they can in- engage in kind of activities that they might might not get to do anywhere else. And it's really going to change the workforce pipeline for North Texas. Yes. And I want to say as well, because I'm able to visualize what the STEM Center of Excellence looks like. It is on an amazing piece of property that some people, I don't know if people would imagine that Texas looks like this. So on one hand, it's it's on an escarpment. It's in the Southern part of Dallas. And like I, the first time I went there, I thought, I cannot believe I didn't know that this was out here because it's such a lovely piece of property. And so it's it's on an escarpment, um, lots of trees and no concrete. The buildings really uh, blend in with the environment. And even though girls are out there studying STEM uh, much of the time, it's still an outdoor place and they can bird, they can do orienteering. So it's not just STEM. So it's really interesting to have the STEM capabilities out in nature. And that's one of the ways that I think, you know, Girl Scouts has always been like, typically I think people think of Girl Scout cookies and camping, you know, or camps. Cookies, camps and crafts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And those are things are true. But you all have really are have a big focus on this evolving, you know, evolving Girl Scouts to programming to meet the needs of girls today based on, you know, the information you just spoke about. This is probably a good time to go into how this leadership program kind of came to be and how it's tied to your strategy because 
Yeah, you have all of this information about what's needed, but then you have to look at and how do we do that? What's going to be our strategy? So talk a little bit about the the efforts that you, the executive team, and your very impressive board of directors, you know, came up with with this strategy or what the focus is. Well, I'll start by saying it is true that people think Girl Scouts is cookies, camps, and crafts. And I always like to say that we are, and those are really important elements of the program. I mean, we are cookies and Girl Scout Cookies is the largest entrepreneurship program for girls in the world. And it happens to be for girls and Girl Scouts. And they get to own their own business for six weeks out of the year. They set goals. They learn business ethics. They learn financial management, customer service. They learn confidence, how to fail and how to fail forward. There's so many great skills that come out of the cookie program. And yes, we are also camps. And we believe that outdoor leadership is where girls can learn leadership is best is at our outdoor camps. And, you know, it's funny, post-COVID, I don't have to argue with people anymore that the outdoors is an important part of our physical and mental wellness. So I do believe very much that the outdoors is an important component of Girl Scouts. And then crafts, you know, girls want to have fun. They want to DIY. They want to get their hands dirty. And we offer that as well. But we offer all of those as a means to an end, which is to build their self-esteem, build their confidence, help them take healthy risks, help them engage with others. And post-COVID, I think more than anything, girls want a place of connection and belonging. And that's what Girl Scouts does better than anyone. And in particular, after several years of isolation, our girls need support in social and emotional learning and emotional intelligence. And Girl Scouts is a safe place to practice those skills where our schools are an institution that is overwhelmed and over committed right now, quite honestly, Mm -hmm. Girl Scouts can step in and really support the development of our young women. So I'm really, really proud of our mission and our commitment to doing that. But I will say post COVID, we had to really rethink what Girl Scouts was bringing to the table. I'm very strong. I'm very proud of the work that Girl Scouts has done for the last 111 years. And going into COVID, we were in a really strong financial position, a really strong reputation. We had a really strong organization. The STEM Center of Excellence had launched in 2018. There were really great things to be proud Mm -hmm. of pre COVID. And then when COVID hit, we had to pivot overnight to virtual programming and to taking care of our staff and taking care of our girls. And we were unable to be together. We didn't have, we didn't allow for our girls to come together for about six months. And then in fall of 2020, we were able to do family programming and then ultimately get back to troop programming. But really there were several things that happened during COVID that really made us stop and take another look. First, locally, we had a 24% drop in membership. Mm. Nationally, it was a 32% drop in membership, but we didn't have access to schools or anywhere where girls were. And so we naturally had a drop in new girls and then families were really pulling back. They were not engaging in outdoor Mm. activities post-COVID or during COVID and even a little bit post-COVID. So our membership had declined significantly. And post the murder of George Floyd, we really needed to think about how we were engaging in an inclusive way and thinking about how we were engaging Mm. communities differently, as well as helping our girls and our staff understand the importance of inclusion and equity and diversity. So those two things were driving us. But in addition to that, pre-COVID, even though we were in a position of strength, our movement had been on at least a 15-year membership decline. And that was mirrored here in the Northeast Texas area. So even though we were in a position of strength in many ways, in terms of membership, we were not. And that is not 
very dissimilar to other youth membership mm-hmm. organizations, particularly mm-hmm. those that are over 100 years old. Many of us were on a membership decline for all kinds of societal and cultural reasons, some of them having to do with us for sure, and some of them not. But they, but we wanted to kind of take a look at the things that we can control. And while many youth organizations were on a decline, we felt strongly that Girl Scouts could not continue to be in that position because Mm. Girl Scouts is essential for the development of young women. And here in Northeast Texas, we're only serving a little over 4% of our market share. So that means 96% of girls aren't getting access to this outstanding leadership program for girls. And we needed to fix that. So Jennifer, I want to just uh, stop right now because I'm, as I'm tracking with you, I'm thinking these are, not the same issues that any organization faced, but they're in the same category, you know, and it's the, you know, our environment has really, really changed. It's a complex and demanding environment. I've done interviews with two guests that will be on future podcasts. And when I ask them, you know, what do you think the key skill for leadership is? It's like agility and adaptability, and that's basically what you're talking about is like whatever we're doing we are going to need to be adaptive and and agile to meet the needs of our community and your community just happens to be girls but any business leader or organizational leader has stakeholders and so even though we're talking nonprofit here every element that you're speaking to any CEO has to look at all of these, you know, even like market share and what happened with demand after COVID and how things changed after COVID. So everyone is wrestling with with these exact same issues, but it shows up differently uh, depending on what your organization mission and what you produce, what your services are. So I just wanted to make that point because, I, like I said, as I was tracking, I just thought these are the same things across the board, no matter what organization you're leading. Absolutely. And I, you know, I run a $20 million business. It is no different from any other kind of corporation or organization. It, at the end of the day, I have to bring a return on investment mm-hmm. um, to my board of directors and um, to the mission of the organization. And so when COVID happened, you we absolutely had to be flexible and adaptable. But also, in addition to all the other challenges I've mentioned, it is a very uncertain world and it is not mm-hmm. going to become more certain in the future. Um, and we had to really think about like, where do we want to be in 10 years? What are girls going to need from us in 10 years? Not next week, not next month, but really 10 years from now, how do we build toward a successful and strong and sustainable organization over the next decade? And so it was that big long-term thinking catalyst. The catalyst, of course, was COVID and the murder of George Floyd and all these things that had happened during a very short, compact period of time. But the future looked so uncertain. The economy is uncertain. You know, we just don't know what's going to happen down the road and we need to be um, agile. We need to be flexible. We need to be prepared, unlike anything I've ever seen in my career. And so that's really what we started to prepare for post-COVID. Yeah. And so you engaged with your board and executives of the organization in a um, a strategic initiative. So talk just a little bit about that and what, you know, I'm I'm drawing a line from that strategic work that you did with you know some of the outputs of that and then how that ties to uh, development because all of the things that you're talking about that are needing in the future most people don't have the 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 capabilities 
the competencies to lead or even uh, be an employee or live in that kind of world. It feels like it happened fast. It, it didn't. But like you said, COVID and the murder of George Floyd really highlighted how we needed to be thinking differently. That's right. And so I started to ask the question, if we were to invent a girl-serving organization in 2022 or 2023, what would it look like? And that kind of questioning made us sort of flip our orthodoxies, if you will, think differently Mm -hmm. about the future. You know, we're a 111-year-old organization, so we have a lot of traditions and legacies and sort of truths and supposed rules that we live by. And so we started to need to really question what could the future look like? So I brought the question, that question, what would, what, what might a girl serving organization look like if we invented it today to my board of directors um, and to my leadership team? And the very first thing I did was reached out to one of my board members from Deloitte and asked them if they could help us from as a third party consultant, think through this process. And they gifted us a half million dollar pro bono project through the Monitor Institute, wow. which is their nonprofit arm up in Boston. And they gave us a number of partners and Deloitte staff. We had seven people actually working with us for 16 weeks. And they took us through a Deloitte process, strategy process to really start to question those truths and to start flipping our orthodoxies. And I, I really like to think a lot about how that process worked. They had a really interesting way of bringing us through that. And at the end of it, they identified, they interviewed staff, they interviewed board, they interviewed Girl Scouts, non-Girl Scouts, volunteers, all kinds of our stakeholders. And they came back to us with a series of truths, things that we know to be true about our organization, like Girl Scouts serves girls or Girl Scouts is happens in a troop with a volunteer or Girl Scouts happens, uh, you recruit girls in schools. Like these are truths that we know to be true. And then they asked us to flip those orthodoxies. So argue the other side. So maybe Girl Scouts isn't just for girls. Maybe it's for girls and their families. Or maybe Girl Scout troops aren't the best model for Girl Scouts. Maybe it's some other model. And we had to argue the flip of that. And in doing that, it really opened our brains to consider that what we've always known to be true might not forever be true, might not Mm -hmm. going forward be true. And so we went through this very deliberate process for 16 weeks. And at the end of the 16 weeks, Deloitte came to our board retreat, presented the findings, which were very focused, particularly on our delivery model and how we would show up in communities. One of the things that Deloitte did in partnership with us is they they connected with a social innovation consulting firm here in Dallas called Cospero. Their primary relationships are in Southern Dallas, which is the under-resourced part of our community. And we're underserving that community in a significant way. And so Cospero went into Southern Dallas and asked questions of the people in that community. And they, they asked, what do you know about Girl Scouts? Um, do you even know about Girl Scouts? Do you trust Girl Scouts? And, you know, kind of simplified finding from that was no, they didn't know us or they didn't have access to us or even worse, they didn't trust us Mm -hmm. primarily because we've been in and out, in and out, in and out, not fully resourcing that community, not fully embracing that community and really not utilizing our best resources or assets there or trying to learn and understand what their best assets and resources and traditions and legacies were. And what we found from that process was that we really did need to look at communities differently in order to be successful. So we brought all of that to our board in May of 2022. And the board said, this is great. This is really interesting. But quite honestly, this is not transformational enough. And so they sent me and my leadership team back to the drawing board for another couple of months until August of 2022, when we had spent the next couple of months layering 
layering in data and information, capacity of our staff, as well as a very fortunate gift of $3.8 million, which was made by Mackenzie Scott to our organization last Mm -hmm. year. And we presented a new strategy to our board of directors. And they approved it unanimously, and we launched that strategy October 1st. One of the biggest things we learned in this nine-month strategic planning process was that we were not ready to transform to be a future-focused organization to serve more girls. We as an organization weren't prepared. Mm. And this was an interesting finding. We heard it directly from our stakeholders in Southern Dallas. We heard it from our friends at Cospero. And basically what people were saying is, don't come to us until you're ready. And that means really understanding what your strengths are, understanding your culture, having trust internally. Mm. And also when we began to kind of investigate what that meant to us, we realized that we weren't that our succession pipeline wasn't diverse enough, that we hadn't Mm. necessarily provided opportunities for people of color within our organization, that there were systemic barriers within our organization for people to, to work within. We also realized that our leadership team, while very strong, was pulling the organization forward and we hadn't developed the internal middle management or even lower management part of the organization to fully embrace the work and be able to take that work forward. So what we were finding was our organization was not in a position to be successful. And quite honestly, as I looked back to many times that we had gone through strategic transformation over the last 13 years that I've been with the organization, the biggest missing piece is we had never invested in ourselves. We had come Mm -hmm. up with good ideas, taken them out to the community, and they had flopped because we weren't able to sustain those great ideas. And Mm -hmm. so this time, the real transformation started with us. And that's what I told my board was, look, I need about four years to make this strategy work. We're going to start internally. We're going to look at our staff organizational or staff capacity building was going to be our first focus. Secondly, was going to be optimizing processes and operating in an excellent way. Third was going to be reimagine our spaces. And then fourth would be engaging the community differently or looking really at our pathways, which was the part of the work that Deloitte had really focused on and provided a stage gate process and all of that. So the interesting thing was that all that great stuff that Deloitte had done for us, we couldn't be prepared for until we invested in ourselves, our spaces and our processes. Mm. Only then could we really execute on the strategic plan that Deloitte had worked with us on. And so that's when I came to you, Leanne. <laughs> and said, you know, this thing we've been talking about for years because we had, right? I had wanted, I had had this dream of creating a leadership program for my staff that looked something like a combination of many leadership programs I had engaged in in my career. I've been through Leadership Dallas. I've been through the Stegen program. I've been through the CCC program. I've been through a number of different programs. And it was like sort of a combination of all of those things that I thought would best benefit my staff. And once we had gotten to this point of understanding what we needed to do and received this very generous gift from Mackenzie Scott, we were able to make that investment and start planning the Leadership Academy. Yes. And so I want to talk about the companies. Well, let's just go there. What What stands out to you the most as like the competencies and capabilities that you thought the organization needed and not just what you thought, but what was showing up through the qualitative data that was being collected through both uh, Deloitte and Cospera. So I want to talk about that first. 
Yeah. So I'll start by saying just from a sort of my own observations, we have a very strong leadership team. It's, I believe, the longest tenured leadership team in the country for the Girl Scout movement. We've been together a long time. We're strong type A personalities and we get stuff done, which is great. But what we found was we were pulling the organization along with us and we held a lot of power at the very top of the organization. And we were making most of the decisions, Mm -hmm. which was super fun, um, but not terribly effective for the organization long-term. And what I realized was that we had to um, delegate decision-making power into the organization so that one, our leadership team could focus more on the strategic and uncertain future of the organization and how we wanted to transform it. But more importantly, so that people within our organization could develop and actually execute on the strategic plan and serve more girls in more communities, in more inclusive ways, which was ultimately our goal of this strategy. And we knew we couldn't do that unless we developed some key competencies in our staff. Mm -hmm. And the work with Deloitte and Cospera uncovered a number of things. And these weren't surprises to me necessarily, but it was helpful to sort of have third party come in and sort of highlight what these ideas were. But things like our staff leadership capacity, our capacity for work, we were overwhelmed. We, you know, particularly post-COVID, there was so much uncertainty in the world and so much going on. Our staff felt like they didn't have any more to give. And so we needed to help them with time management and delegation and those kinds of things. We were struggling with how to give feedback, how to have crucial conversations, difficult conversations, straight talk. We were uh, an organization of perfection. We weren't necessarily allowing for failure, failure or failing forward. And so there was some real fear within the organization. Mm -hmm. We were coming at this work with a real scarcity mindset versus an abundance mindset. And I, as a leader, I like to, you know, set aside the financial part for a minute, but let's dream real big. And then we'll come back and figure out how to fund it. And my staff were, you know, they weren't even asking for things to get fixed because they were afraid we didn't have enough money. And we really had to change that mindset that Mm -hmm. we actually have a great abundance of resources. And it's all in a matter of choices and how we spend that. So coming at things from that place of abundance, we were in many ways, a transactional organization versus a relational organization. I often talked about, you know, we would go into the community and say, here's Girl Scouts, take it or leave it versus coming in and saying, hey, you you have girls in your community, you care about them. What can we bring to the table that aligns with your assets and your strengths and your traditions and your legacies to help develop the girls in your community? We were really coming in with a savior approach versus mm. as a partner a partnership approach. So all of these things, I mean, there was I mean, there was a lot. We were focused on um how to get our staff to own their work, to be accountable, to really be more self-aware of themselves and how they were showing up in in the work and in the organization, helping them to collaborate. Collaboration is not one of our strengths. We're very innovative, but we are not terribly good at scaling. So we were thinking around those kinds of concepts. We found that we didn't have a lot of trust internally, you know, between our leadership team and the rest of the staff in between peers. If someone had failed someone else, then that trust hadn't been rebuilt. And so there was a lot of um, trust issues within the organization. We weren't communicating as effectively as we needed to. So there was a lot of opportunity for growth and development within our organization that I wanted to make sure that we focused on before we presented ourselves out into the community. Mm -hmm. And we realized from the work of Deloitte and Cospero that that if we didn't make that investment, we this strategy was going to fail. It was going to fall flat on its face. And so we stopped and said, we've got to do this first. 
Yeah. And so you had, you mentioned that you have been a part of different types of leadership programs yourself. So you had an idea in your mind um, Uh of what the program could be. And I, you know, a lot of people will contact me and they want a a workshop to cover all of that. Can you do a workshop and, and teach us all of that? And then And that's it. And that is a a more traditional model, which is, you know, bring everybody together in the same room or now it's on Zoom, uh, present some material and then, you know, call it done. And we know that is not sticky. So in your mind, when you were seeing this program, what elements were important for you and I know that you and I, I call it like a, a heavenly partnership because uh, partnering with you and your team has just been so amazing with with our own collaboration. But you had something in your mind. And so what what were the key elements for you as you were thinking about this? Well, first I'll say I had the opportunity to work with you, Leanne, when I first became CEO, because my board of directors was worried that I was going to burn out too quickly because of a number of elements of my leadership style that needed to be adjusted. And so they hired uh, you to come work with me for about six months back in 2014, 2015. And it was transformational for me, truly transformational, Mm -hmm. that coaching experience. You know, it really led me to connect better empathetically and compassionately with my staff and helped me release some of my perfectionism and my high expectations for myself and others. And it just made me a much, much better leader. And as soon as I got through that program and realized all the ways that I could be a better leader when I let go of some of those things and embraced other elements of my leadership style, I knew I wanted to find a way for us to continue to work together. And you were kind enough to go to dinner with me a couple of times a year for a couple of years. And we dreamed big about doing something like this. And every time we would meet, it would sort of take a little bit more shape and a little more shape and a little more shape. But then it didn't really make sense until we had gone through the strategic planning process, as well as it received the McKenzie Scott gift. And as we were kind of dreaming about this program, a couple of things came to my mind. So for instance, I did the Leadership Dallas program. And the best thing I got out of that was after nine months, I had 52 new friends, a close network, people to hold me accountable, people to engage with me, people for me to talk to. And I wanted that feeling of community for my staff. Uh That was first and foremost. And then secondly, I have been through, you know, Stegen and CCC and some other programs where I had real skill building. And I wanted my staff to also have definitive skill building that would stay with them for a long time and have the opportunity to practice it in real time. The other thing I wanted was I wanted to my staff to recognize that I was investing in them in a significant way and that this was the priority work over everything else that Mm. they did. So when we designed this, we designed it with three full day sessions over the course of the seven months, plus once a month Zoom meetings, plus this time with their cohort or Envigato that you created for us. So, and I said, you know, these these sessions were required. I would be there and they were expected to be mm-hmm. there. No matter what other workload was on their plate, this was time that I was investing in them and I wanted them to be there. So in addition to that community and sense of belonging and trust building, as well as all the skill building, I wanted them to know that this was an investment in them that we were making. And that even if they were to leave Girl Scouts and go on in the world, they 
they were going to be better leaders because of this investment. And I Mm -hmm. really wanted them to feel that connection to our organization and to our mission. And I think I'm really proud that, you know, we started with 44 participants. We ended with 43 only because one of them uh, moved to Oregon and couldn't participate anymore. So every single member of our Leadership Academy stuck through the entire seven months, you know, at different levels of engagement for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, But all of them stuck through the whole thing. And I'm really proud of that. Yeah, you should be. And the, you know, I think that a key element of the success was your sponsorship and the engagement of the executive team. And we're going to go into this a little bit more in our next conversation with each other when we talk about, you know, how the participants were chosen Mm -hmm. uh, because we, it was really innovative. And the fact that you know, a traditional approach is to kind of go top down and do the Mm -hmm. first, you know, do one layer of leaders and the next layer. And I think part of the truth is that you weren't sure about the funding, you know, like what the, the, the lifespan of this, this gift was. And so we weren't sure if there was going to be another program or not, but now we know that there's going to be at least one more, maybe two more, um, versions. We're, we're going to repeat this and continue to um, integrate it in in the organization uh, in various ways. But so we had a very, uh, we had a big cross section of people, uh, uh, multiple layers of leadership in the organization. And like I said, we'll talk about how uh, participants were chosen next time. But um, just that investment where Everybody was expected to show up and your executive team absolutely showed up. You know, um, they invested, they were at all of the meetings. Um, you all participated and what I, what often happens when someone like me gets a phone call, it's, Hey, my leaders need to develop. Will you basically come fix them? And that that is not the message, and that's not that was not your request. I mean, you knew um, always, and I think a big part of that, Jennifer, was the the programs that you had been through. So you knew what it was going to take. You had been doing the work on yourself for however long, and so you were ready to lead by example, which I also think is is important, and it's an important expectation. You know, when I think of key elements of success, it's the people are looking at you, employees, you know, your organization is looking and saying, well, if it's so important, are they going to do it? And are they exemplifying? That's right. And I, you know, it's interesting because when I look back on the last three or four years, nothing really was by accident. It was very deliberate. And so after the murder of George Floyd and after, you know, the craziness of the first six months of COVID, I recognized that I had to go on my own personal leadership journey. And while I was, oh, I've always been committed to inclusion and diversity and equity, I actually didn't really know what that meant. And as a white woman of privilege, I didn't understand the power that I held and the um, opportunity I had to break down some of the systemic barriers that exist whether or not I was conscious of them. And so I spent this next several years reading all the books. I went through Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation, a program by the Kellogg Foundation here in Dallas to better understand diversity, equity, and inclusion in our community. I listened to podcasts. I talked to people. I got Mm. very, very engaged in the diversity work and understanding that I needed to be a different kind of leader post-COVID. I absolutely, I think I was a strong CEO pre-COVID, but if I had stayed in the same 
you know, leadership style and same skill skill set as I was pre-COVID, post-COVID, I would not have been the right CEO for Girl Scouts of Northeast Texas. So mm-hmm. I knew I had to go on a leadership journey. And I wanna went on a very deliberate and intense leadership journey around DEI. And then I had the opportunity to start with the Stegen program in April of 2020, which at the time I thought was like the worst timing to go through a leadership program. But in hindsight, it was actually a great time for me and 22 other women who were in a social change cohort of Stegen to be together for nine months to really explore the way our leadership styles had to change in this very crazy COVID environment. And so both of those things happened to me during this period. And what I found at, at, at the conclusion of, and not that you're ever concluded, but at, at, the, at sort of the next phase of leadership, you're done. <laughs> wouldn't that be lovely? But what I, what I recognized was that I had changed so dramatically in the way that I saw the world because of that work that I had done, that I w- started really regularly talking to my leadership team about the leadership journey that I was on and that they needed to be on. And I also have always had this mantra that, you know, the delegation is critically important to our success and that, you know, there are, I have my own zone of genius and I need to spend as much time of my time in my zone of genius as I can, because that's how I best serve this organization. And so I started challenging, I didn't have quite those words at the time, but I started challenging my leadership team to do the same. And what I discovered is it wasn't a natural shift or evolution mm-hmm. for them that they were holding on to power and they were holding on to decisions because they were afraid to let go of them. And they also didn't know if they could trust their staff to take them on. And so, you know, a lot of things were happening during this time, but even before we started the Leadership Academy, I was talking about, you need to delegate decision-making. We need to delegate the power out of the leadership team into the rest of the organization. We have to better understand what equity and inclusion looks like in this organization, and we have to lift up our women of color. And I started hiring coaches for the women of color in our organization, actually women of color coaches for the women of color in my organization. And I started sort of doing all these things in a way to prepare us. And I'm not sure I entirely knew that I was preparing us, but I did know that I was preparing us for a new way of leader leading the organization. And that ultimately culminated in launching the Leadership Academy. So when we started it, my leadership team knew that this was as much for us as it was for the rest mm-hmm. of the organization, that we also had to evolve as leaders to be prepared to serve this organization in the future. And so I asked them and sort of committed us to being as involved in the Leadership Academy as anyone else. And I would venture to say we were more involved than 90% of the Leadership Academy members. And I think you could ask any member of my leadership team, they have been on a significant personal leadership journey over the last couple of years, and particularly through this Leadership Academy. And the shared language that we now have and the conversations that we now have and the shifts that we've had to make have been significant and would have been impossible without this. Yeah. And one of the things that you said was, you know, several of the people in your organization had executive coaches, which is, I think, amazing. And, but what I find that happens with one-on-one coaching, and I do a lot of executive coaching, so I'm, I'm obviously a big proponent of it. It will result or it can result in personal change But when you're trying to move an organization forward, having a lot of one-off conversations with people, with different coaches, it's not that it doesn't work, but it's not all being held together. And so having a container 
where people were learning the same thing at the same time. They were talking about those things. They were practicing them. Um, both individually and in their their cohorts, which we called invagados. And so just the the collective experience, you know, there's that term transformation happens in community. Yeah. And so it really that's why I love this particular type of work because it is m- more likely to result in organizational transformation when everybody is committed over a period of time to the same content, the same practices, the same expectations, et cetera. And there's a very predictable arc, which is, and we heard this from some people yesterday that, you know, it feels kind of like a bait and switch, like I'm going to management training and then they get in and, you know, the, the arc typically starts with self-awareness and, you know, personal work and so it was a little bit of a, you know, a head shake for some people. Like, why are we talking about my feelings and my emotions as part of a leadership program? And so you can also track, which is very predictable, that because people don't have their necessarily have their legs underneath them in the beginning about how all of this is going to work, that there's a build-up period of time where people are getting used to doing practices every day or every week and having these kinds of conversations. And so we know that it starts slow, but then by the end, the stories get told like the ones that we heard yesterday are amazing when people apply themselves. And then going back to the leadership commitment, if the executive team is not willing to not be perfect, but show that they're engaged then people will never get out of that initial phase of skepticism. That's right. So many things there I want to comment on. Yeah. First, we are the Girl Scouts and we are about leadership development for girls. And so therefore, we should be about leadership development for our staff. So I've always budgeted for executive coaching, but primarily, and again, here, here I am learn, on my own equity journey, it's been primarily focused on my leadership team. And so my staff as a whole have not benefited from that leadership development opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even pre-COVID, we were working toward adjust, addressing that and then post-COVID or mid COVID, I became through the Stegen program actually became connected to a lot of really impressive women of color who also serve as coaches in the community. And I was able to hire them for mm-hmm. some of my staff to, to come in and help develop them. And all that is great. And I, I am a big proponent of professional coaching and you know, doing that one-on-one work just like you are. But this was something different that I needed for the organization to transform and transformation was not going to happen one by one by one. It had to happen in a group. And as I said, too, when we designed this, I... It was absolutely imperative that my executive team go through it, but it was also absolutely imperative that it not just be at the top, that it had to be within the whole organization. And so I actually opened up the application process to every full-time employee. And so, and I had to convince people that they were actually allowed to apply. But yeah, we no, have, don't go too far down that path because we're okay. going to do a whole episode on okay. that But I will say, piece. but it was, you know, what made it really interesting is that we had myself as CEO and all my chiefs and that kind of thing and frontline staff in this room doing this work together yes. and being vulnerable together and being, you know, crying together and talking about feelings together and talking about, you know, our successes and our challenges and our personality styles and our leadership style and all that. Just the conversation was so different because of the way that we designed that. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that you're highlighting here too, that that also happens. So let me first say, you've mentioned Stegen a couple of times. I will put definitely a link in the show note to Stegen. So Stegen is a, a leadership organization that started off working with um, CEOs of mid-market organizations. And typically who are in those programs are individual leaders of different companies, which is a great idea because everyone needs, you know, a space, especially CEOs need Mm -hmm. a space to come together with other CEOs. And so that's a program that you were in where you were in, in the program with other CEOs and executive directors in mostly in the Dallas area, I think. And so Mm -hmm. I, I just wanted to make that clear what what Stegen is because it's a 52 week, 52 week program. And we've got, I did a, an episode that will be airing uh, along with this drop with Rick Warren and Raf and all three of us are associated with Stegen. And so you'll learn more about kind of the thinking in, in that uh, program as well. So that's one thing that I wanted to say. And then the other part is that one of the things that Raf said was whatever you think is going to happen is not going to be what happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we have this idea in our mind that the learning is going to look like a hockey stick. And I may have even set it up that way a little bit when I talked about, oh, it's a little bit slow, but then it kind of takes off. But it's messy because people are learning, oh, this is what leadership looks like. And people start quote, glowing in the dark, the people who are really taking it on and doing the practices and making the changes and having insights. And then people that are a little bit slower to start implementing and making those changes and people start noticing. And you can't predict when and how that's going to happen and it will happen. And so you you know can create this really great curriculum and a structure and process. And then humans are humans and it's going to show up in every organization differently. And I think even in our second academy, it will be different with that group of people than it was the first group. And so you, part of it is predictable as far as, you know, what the structure is and what the content is. And then, you know, then the sky's the limit and anything can happen after that. Yeah, I, I, it definitely was messy. You know, one one of the things that was really interesting to me that I didn't anticipate was how quickly bad behavior became uh, started to stick out like a sore thumb. You know, <laughs> whereas in the past, someone could behave badly and it could get hidden because you know there was whatever distrust or gossip or whatever was happening in the organization, and it just got hidden. But once st- our staff started to learn the skills to really develop their leadership and they started to behave in more appropriate ways, you know, having the crucial conversations, doing the straight talk, giving feedback, then bad behavior stuck out like a sore thumb. And so we had to address some of that as an organization. The other thing that I thought was such a great outcome that I didn't anticipate was the shared language that everyone started to have that was in the leadership Mm -hmm. academy. They started to use the same terms. And so, you know, we did, you know, the empowerment dynamic. So we were talking about being a victim or being a persecutor or being a coach. And, you know, people could recognize when they were or were not in those positions Mm -hmm. in a meeting. Or, you know, I've had people come in and say, can can we do straight talk? 
talk right now. And I'm like, okay, let's do some straight talking. <laughs> so sort of, a, it's an invitation for our staff to sort of be on a level playing field, regardless if you're talking to the CEO or to somebody yeah. on the front line, that we can have these kinds of important conversations. One of our big skill sets that we have to work on is how to say no, right? We don't have capacity or resources to do everything. And yet we want to be everything to everyone. And so watching our staff set boundaries for their own selves personally, as well as for the organization has been really rewarding. And I think getting to see me do it and getting to see our leadership team do it, it really had a profound impact on the others in the academy. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to have the opportunity to talk to each other two more times. In closing for this particular conversation, what would you tell your fellow CEOs or leaders out there if they are looking at a program like this? What is a key thing that they should be ready for or consider or be willing to do in order to carry out a successfully carry out a program like this? What what's a, you know, one or two things that you would say are really key to making it a success? I I think there are a couple of things. I think, you know, having a why for the reason to do this, right? right? So we have it, we want to show up in community in a very different way going forward. And in order to be prepared for that, we needed to invest in ourselves. So it wasn't just willy nilly, let's just invest in this program. There's a there's an end goal here. And our Beautiful. staff were very clear on what that end goal was that we're investing in you because we care about you as employees, but also we are investing in you because you're leaders in this organization and we need you to be prepared to lead in a different way going forward. So I think that is have the why clear and communicated to your team. Mm-hmm. I also think to your point, executive engagement is critical. It's a must have that you know, I'm not just expecting you all to become better leaders. I have to become a better leader and I'm willing to be in the trenches with you and go through that difficult, hard work to get to be that, to get to that next level. I think time is a resource, right? Nobody has extra time. I'm as busy as anybody is and everybody on my team is busy. There's none of us that are more busy than anybody else. And yet we committed to three full days out of the office hour and a half Zoom meetings once a month, regular Envigado meetings. We didn't miss those. Those were committed periods of time. And you have to make that commitment because leadership development does not happen without time. (laughs) Just doesn't. Yeah. So I think that's really important too. I also think, you know, we had been on a cultural journey as an organization for some time. We've been working on our cultural values and we've been working on being more people-centric. Our people-centric is one of our very key focuses for our strategic plan is putting our people first. And so that was, while you know, I'm not sure everyone in the organization had fully bought into that at that time. They knew we were on that journey to that. So it really fit nicely with where mm-hmm. we were headed to go. So I think it's important to be clear that our people, I mean, in my case, my people are my greatest asset. I have nothing but people. That's what I have. And I need mm-hmm. them to be the best versions of themselves so that we as an organization can be the best version of ourselves. So that makes complete and total sense in order to invest in this way. And I will also say just as an organization and, and for-profit or nonprofit, my boss is my board of directors. And for me to be able to do this successfully, I had to have their full buy-in as well. And I made the case for support yeah. to my staff. I made the case for support to my board that 
we had to start with ourselves first. That was my first commitment. And they can see the cultural shift that has happened over the last year. They can see it. I absolutely can see it. Um, And, you know, at commencement yesterday, our staff were talking about the cultural shift that's happened in the organization. I I mean, obviously we're not done. We're going to be on a leadership journey forever, but I feel like we're in a different place than we were a year ago to be prepared for this big work ahead. Yeah. Well, the room certainly felt different yesterday from the first time that we were together. So I want to summarize, you said the why, that the organization needs to have a strong why. The second that you said was that where, that the strategy, that the people was, you know, that fit into the strategy. So there's a line of sight between the strategy to the people and then even the cultural expectations. So you've you've created a line of sight and and an ecosystem at the same time that really was able to support the learning and people being fully in even when they didn't know what they were getting into. And that's typically the case, you know, that people think they're coming in for one thing and uh, it's, it ends up being something else. There was a, a Stegen uh, alumna that would say um, it's a bait and switch, (laughs) you know, (laughs) they get you in there thinking we're going to make you a better manager or a better CEO. It's going to be tactics. And then you get in there and it's a, a much more, heart-centered and personal transformation. And it's not either or, it's both, but people don't often expect the the softer side of it, the more soulful that's, side. That's right. And I think, you know, I've heard my staff tell me that this has had profound impact on their personal life mm-hmm. as much as it has on their pro- professional life. And I think that is really heartwarming for me because people are so grateful for this opportunity. And I'm so proud that we were able to provide it to them. And, you know, we're going to do it again this coming year. And again, the year after my ultimate goal is that every employee goes through this. And then ultimately, you know, if we have the resources, I we need to maintain this some level of leadership development and personal development for our staff ongoing. Yeah, yeah. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for being with me this morning on our first conversation. The next one, like I said earlier, is really going to talk about the how participants were chosen because it was, uh, you talk about flipping orthodoxies, it was a pretty unorthodox way of, of choosing participants and it worked out beautifully. And so mm-hmm. we're going to talk more about that and the things that you were talking about, like the the sharing of power and, and all of those kinds of things that were also happening at the same time and fac- were facilitated by the program. So Great. I will have links to uh, many of the things that we talked about um, in the show notes. And I look forward to our next conversation, Miss Jennifer Barkowski. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I sure hope you enjoyed this episode. As a reminder, this is part of a Rise Leaders Radio limited series podcast called Reimagine Leadership. There are several additional episodes focused on various aspects of a seven-month practice and cohort-based program that I developed for the Girl Scouts of Northeast Texas. I've included links to various topics that we've discussed, and you can find those in the show notes for this episode. Be sure to listen to the last episode in this series, where we'll be reviewing the results of the program, what we learned, and how we're thinking about our next steps. 
In addition to curating leadership programs like this, I also offer executive coaching and strategic approaches to leadership and team development. Please reach out to me via the contact information on my website at www.rise-leaders.com. And by the way, Rise Leaders Radio is on YouTube now, and this is probably the best way for you to leave comments or engage in a conversation with me regarding this or any of the episodes. And of course, finally, if you found this episode useful or interesting, please share it with others and leave me a nice review. Thank you so much. And remember that you have the power to elevate your part of the world.